Good morning once again to all of you. Please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue our journey through this wonderful chapter all about resurrection. If you'd like to use a pew Bible, I'm pretty sure you can find this on page 961. And this morning we're listening to these verses uh, that Lisa read to us a few minutes ago, uh, verses 29 through 34. And these verses would have been originally first addressed to early Christians, new Christians in the city of Corinth, the church in the city of Corinth. And what's amazing about God's word is that by his Holy Spirit, the same spirit who inspired these words to Paul, that same spirit is here with us now addressing these words to us afresh right now. So this is our fourth week in this chapter. So like we did last Sunday, let's do a quick recap in case you're just now joining us. Week one, we considered through verses one through 11, the matters of first importance. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ appeared. The second week, we looked at verses 12 through 20 or 12 through 19. What if Christ had not been raised? Well, then everything in life and death is worthless and futile. Week three, last week, if you were here, we looked at verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Jesus has done something about death, praise God. Jesus will do something about death. And in his great power, Jesus is not only death's conqueror, he is also death's great reverser. That's where we've been. I've said this before, but allow me to say it again. At the center of our faith is a living breathing, resurrected King Jesus and his resurrection and our resurrection in him and because of him is central and essential and without it, everything falls apart. And that leads us to our text for today, verses 29 through 34. The big idea here is is this, since this is all true, since Jesus is alive, since we are a resurrection people, And since one day we will be a resurrected people, then Jesus' resurrection ought to naturally manifest itself or supernaturally manifest itself in how we live. Our lives, my life, your life, practically, day to day, ought to be lived in light of the resurrection, in light of Jesus' resurrection, his triumph and his victory and his eternal life and in light of our resurrection, our victory in Christ, our triumph in Christ, our eternal life in Christ. Easter isn't, again, it isn't just one day on the calendar for Christians. It's not just one day when we dress up, come to church for 90 minutes or so. If we have small children at home, hide some Easter eggs, eat some good food, and then if you're like me on Easter, take a really nice nap. It's not just one day. Easter is every day for us because Christ is alive every day. Therefore, Christ is alive in us every day. Therefore, we are alive in Christ every day. That's how it works. And so therefore, in light of the resurrection, we live every day practically. And so Jesus' resurrection ought to manifest itself in how we live. And that's what our text today is all about, about putting resurrection into practice, allowing the glorious light of our glorious Christ to shine upon our lives. And as we look at God's word together, in just these six verses, we'll see that the risen Jesus 
does that, he, he shines his light upon our lives in order to accomplish at least three purposes. And the first purpose, the first reason why the risen Jesus shines his resurrection light upon us is to reveal, to reveal where internally or externally we aren't putting resurrection into practice. So several things are revealed or exposed, you could say, in our text today in the Corinthian church in that time. And while the specific practices of those specific people may not be familiar to us, the underlying roots of those practices might feel awfully familiar to us. And the risen Jesus shines his light to reveal. And the first thing which is revealed here in verse 29 is an uncertainty about eternal life. An uncertainty about eternal life. We read about this in verse 29. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Paul is addressing a specific practice in those early days of the church. It's a practice that most likely, I'm thinking, sounds quite odd to most of us. A practice that most likely none of us have ever had any experience or struggle with. I've heard a lot of people's church stories. I've heard a lot of people's stories about painful things they've experienced in the church. I have yet to experience a person who's told me they came from a church that practiced baptism of the dead. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll meet someone who has. So it's not a practice that we are very familiar with. What seems to have been happening... Uh, though the details are fuzzy, as I researched this this week, I'm not kidding, um, I read there are over 40 possible doctrinal and theological historical explanations for what Paul is talking about here. So it's fuzzy, but what is clear is this. There was something happening that was like a vicarious baptism or a baptism by proxy where living people were being baptized on behalf of dead people so that those dead people who had not been followers of Jesus might receive resurrection, might receive a bodily resurrection if such a thing were even to happen. That's what Paul is addressing here, the practice he's addressing, vicarious baptism or baptism by proxy. Now, this does take place in our day in other religions. I think of Mormonism, for example. But Christians don't typically practice this practice. So then let's put the practice aside and look at the deeper root because that's the deeper meaning and the underlying root of that practice, which the light of the risen Jesus reveals, is an uncertainty about eternal life. And what we see is that when we are uncertain about eternal life, either ours or someone else's, then to use an obscure theological phrase, we do ridiculous things. <laughs> a lack of certainty in Christ, a lack of certainty about eternal life in Christ was manifesting itself in their lives through that practice that we read about, and it will manifest itself in our lives through different practices. I can think of at least six ways, six practices that people nowadays might manifest an uncertainty about eternal life. There are more we could all think of, but just for the sake of time, here's six uh, superstitious practices, occult practices, an unhealthy fear of death, an unhealthy infatuation with death. We've all had that neighbor or driven by that house on Halloween that seems to enjoy just a, a glorification of death. 
lack of assurance in Jesus's assurance over death. You know, it might sound like this, you know, I've given my life to Christ. I trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, but I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. Or six, finding assurance in anything other than Jesus's assurance. Maybe you've heard this, you know, I've really been a good person. Or that person was really a good person. These practices today are all rooted in the same uncertainty about eternal life that 1 Corinthians 15 addresses. And in light of Jesus, in light of his resurrection, the certain light of his resurrection, these practices are, for a lack of a better word, ridiculous. And Paul doesn't hold back in addressing it. So I can't. Without certainty in eternal life in Christ, certainty about his resurrection and certainty about our resurrection, then we try to make sense of death apart from the only one who can make sense of death because he has the keys to it. He's conquered it and reversed it. It's not possible to make sense of death apart from Christ. We need his certainty to make sense of death or else we embrace nonsense about death. And Jesus reveals this. There's more revealing to be done of ways we may not be putting resurrection into practice. Look with me at verse 32 uh, down below where the light of Jesus also reveals what might be an obsession with this earthly life, with what's in front of us right now. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He pays the people of Ephesus a real compliment here, calling them beasts, um, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That would have been a common phrase in that culture. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Is their equivalent of, of YOLO. <laughs> you only live once. It was their equivalent of, you know, what's on your bucket list. You may have heard of a bucket list. What you're going to do in your life before you die, before you kick the bucket. You know, this... This way of living, this YOLO way of living says, this is all there is. So I gotta live it up. I have to spend it all. I have to experience everything there is to experience. Uh, And in the ancient words of the Outback Steakhouse motto, uh, no rules, just right. You know, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Living in light of the resurrection not only reveals the absurdity about that way of thinking and that way of living, but it blows it to smithereens. You don't live once. In Christ, you live forever. You have eternity to enjoy. You don't need to check everything off your bucket list in this life. You will have infinite eternity to enjoy infinite bucket lists. An obsession with this earthly life reveals that you may need to be reoriented around the real hope of the resurrection. You may not experience every joy in this life. You may not experience everything there is to experience in this life. You may not travel everywhere you want to travel. You may not receive everything you want to receive. You may not get everything you want. But your life doesn't revolve around that. Your life revolves around the resurrection. The motto of the resurrectionless life is YOLO. You only live once. The motto of the resurrection-centric life is Psalm 1611. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
So, first two things, the light of Jesus reveals where we're not putting resurrection into practice are due to internal problems. An internal uncertainty, perhaps, about what's around the corner, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And an internal obsession about what's in front of us, our bucket list. The last thing that gets exposed is an external problem, and it's those people in our lives who may actually be ruining our lives. Let's pick up in the last half of verse 32 and then look at verse 33. If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So there were Christians in Corinth who, as Christians, therefore, were children of the light who were being ruined by children of the darkness. So there's a simple application here, and it's the same thing we all learned as little kids. It's that you might want to listen to your mother's advice. (laughs) She was right to warn you about who you hang around with. Your mother was right to warn you about who you let to speak into your life. But this isn't just motherly wisdom. This is biblical wisdom. Bad company ruins good morals. Another phrase that Paul is lifting here from the culture to drive a biblical point home. The resurrection of Jesus, the good news of his being raised from death to life and the inseparable consequence of that, of of us being raised from death to life, produces then a conflict between death and life that plays out in our very self. If we allow the influence of death, perhaps through bad company, maybe, to play tug of war with us. We have life on the one hand, we have death on the other, and they're playing tug of war with us. And so the word of God gives us a warning. It says, listen to your mother. (laughs) Listen to your heavenly father. He shines the light of his risen son upon us in order to reveal. He also shines his light upon us in order to reassure, to reassure. What he reassures us of is the truth we heard in Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Look with me at verse 30. Paul has set this up again by framing it in the hypothetical of the resurrection not being true. And if that's the case, in a resurrectionless life, then he asks, starting in verse 30, then why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? That's uh, verses 30 through 32. That just help us understand how Paul is setting this up rhetorically, I think the New Living Translation is also helpful. So here's uh, the same verses, 30 through 32 in the NLT. Why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? I swear, dear brothers and sisters, I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. So what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus? if there will be no resurrection from the dead. He's using a rhetorical tool of proving the strength of his argument for the reassurance we receive because of the resurrection by showing the utter absurdity of life without the resurrection. Then why risk your life? Why face death? 
Why face those wild beasts in Ephesus if this life is all there is? If there's no, uns- if there's no certainty of eternal life, if there's no guarantee of victory or of triumph. So the lesson, again, is, is actually one of reassurance. If there is no reassurance of any meaning, of anything without the light of the resurrection, then we can rejoice that in the certain light of the resurrection, we are reassured by our risen Jesus himself that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that gives everything ultimate meaning. We can live our lives through many dangers, toils, and snares. And we can know that because we, sons and daughters of God, adopted through Jesus Christ, we heard it last week, our second Adam, because we're not only buried with Christ, but also very much raised with Christ, then, as Paul puts it in Romans 14, 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, what does he say? We die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's reassurance in a resurrected Christ. That's all we know. That's all we know. And that's all we need to know. Why did this thing happen to me? I don't know. Why did this thing happen to that person? I don't know. Why did this thing not happen? Why is this thing currently happening? I don't know. Why the danger? Why the opposition? Why the darkness? I don't know. But what I do know, because Jesus is risen, is that I am the Lord's. And so if I live, I live to the Lord. And if I die, I die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I can face danger. I can face death. I can deal with those wild beasts in Ephesus or downtown or in the workplace or at school with the deepest, truest, most profound meaning in Christ. We are reassured of this because of the resurrection. If Jesus was dead, we're dead like him. But since Jesus is alive, we're alive with him and we are the Lord's. And remember this promise, this offer, this reassurance is validated in the resurrection. We're gonna sing this line at the end of the service today. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Now, we're going to sing that line twice at the very end of the service. And when we sing that line, I kind of hope we sing it twice as loud as all the other lines of the song. It should ring with the promise of the resurrection. His kingdom is forever. We're not just singing some doctrinal truth, although we are. If his kingdom is forever, and he's the king of the kingdom, and we belong to the king of the kingdom, then when we sing that line... His kingdom is forever. I'm saying, I'm going to live forever. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And what is his truth that abideth still? He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. So the risen Jesus shines his light, we've seen, to reveal, to reassure. And finally, hopefully predictably by now, he also shines his light to resurrect. Verse 34, wake up. Someone turn to your neighbor who looks like they're sleeping through this sermon and say, wake up. Come on, you can do it. Wake up. It's okay. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. 
For some have no knowledge of God. Get ready for this. I say this to your shame. Sounds a bit harsh. I say this to your shame. Let me read how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. Think straight. Awaken to the holiness of life. No more playing fast and loose with resurrection facts. Ignorance of God is a luxury you can't afford in times like these. Aren't you embarrassed that you've let this kind of thing go on as long as you have? Hmm. Aren't you embarrassed? Paul is not being harsh. He's being kind. Because it's not kind to let someone continue to go on living in such a way or to continue doing things in such a way or continue being the kind of person who behaves a kind of way which in light of the resurrection is actually an embarrassment. We all need that friend or that spouse who will, you know, kick us under the table when we're about to embarrass ourselves in front of company. I know I have felt that gentle or sometimes not so gentle kick from Catherine a few times. I've got lots of embarrassing stories, but I don't have time. I can't share them. I'm so sorry. (laughs) We all need that friend or family member who will tell us Uh, You know, you've got whipped cream on your nose. Um, You might want to get that ketchup off your chin before you go into the job interview. (laughs) Uh, To hold up a mirror and say, you might be embarrassed by this if you could see it, might bring shame, but the shame is driven by love. We might not like what we see in the mirror, but sometimes we have to look in the mirror. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 34. He's saying, wake up from your drunken stupor. Look in the mirror. Some of you are living like you don't know God. And I say this to your shame. I'm saying this because I love you too much to let you keep living like this, church. So maybe we need to hear this this morning in love and in Christ, but in all seriousness, wake up. Some of you might be living like you don't know God. Wake up. Some of you might be living as if you're uncertain about eternal life in Christ. Wake up. Some of you might be living as if this is all there is. Wake up. Some of you might be letting people speak into your life who don't know Jesus. Wake up. Some of you have forgotten that whether in life or in death, you are the Lord's. So wake up. So God says, Clearly to us this morning in our text, he tells us to wake up. And in doing so, he basically tells us there are two ways we can live in response to all this. And here's the first. We can go on living in a drunken stupor, as if Christ has not been raised, as if there is no certainty about eternal life, as if all we have to live for is this earthly life. And we're listening to the songs of death and we're absorbing the message of death and we are deceived. And if we are deceived, we are not passively deceived. If we are deceived, we are deceived by the deceiver. Revelation 12, 9 describes the devil as the deceiver of the whole world. And we can live our lives individually in a drunken stupor, deceived by the devil 
fumbling around without light, living practically as if Christ is dead. We can live that way individually. We can also live that way corporately. The church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, entire churches, entire congregations, entire denominations can live practically as if Jesus is dead. And that emptiness at the core manifests itself in an emptiness at the core. That's one way we can live. But there's another way we can live, and that's the invitation today, and it's to wake up, come alive, live our lives in the light of the resurrected Jesus himself, to let him shine daily, hour by hour, moment by moment, let him shine his light upon us and within us, individually and corporately, and say to the risen Jesus, reveal, oh Jesus, where I'm not living in, in your light Reassure me, O oh Jesus, that I am living in your light and resurrect me. This whole idea today of putting resurrection into practice is Jesus' desire for us. And what's so wonderful is that he's made a way for this to happen. This whole putting resurrection into practice is not a work of the flesh. We cannot accomplish this by trying we cannot accomplish this by striving. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Hear this from Romans 8:11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, let me just invite all of us as individuals, and as a church to surrender afresh to the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive in us. And oh, that we would surrender more and more to come alive in him, that we would allow him to wake us up and if that power of God by the Spirit was strong enough to raise a dead man on that first Easter and was strong enough to roll that stone away on that first Easter, then our God is able to do immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. How? According to the power at work in us. We surrender afresh to the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power, to put the resurrection into practice in us. So let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would fall afresh on us, that you would shine the resurrection light of Jesus Christ upon us and within us to reveal, to reassure, and to resurrect. Lord, Father, sometimes we are of little faith. Sometimes we don't believe you can do it to us or to others. God, would you increase our faith in the resurrection power that is freely given in the Spirit through Christ? Wake us up, Lord even more, more today, in Jesus' name, amen.